Welcome back to How We Innovate Third Sector Talks, the podcast where we explore the future of the third sector. I'm Marcel Speller, founder of Brevio, and in this episode, we're talking about how to shake up the system. I caught up with my old friend, Sir Tim Smith, the visionary behind the Eden Project. We discussed real system change, what makes a good philanthropist, and why we should all be a bit more Dutch. I began by asking Tim whether he really thinks there are similarities between what he's trying to do in climate change and charity grant making. Oh, to be honest, I think there are a lot of similarities. I think one of the things we've got to rid ourselves of, and I know you certainly have, is the sense of some self-righteous wonderfulness about people who are in either section. A lot of charities suffer from uh, the fact that they waste a lot of their resources, that they don't invest in their people. I think that the, the thing that amazes me, I graduated from the School of Environmental Sciences in 1971 at University of East Anglia, and we knew about the problems of climate change then. And, you know, that was, what, 50 years ago? And what, what worries me, I mean, the similarity between the charities and the climate sector is that there's been so much talk and so little action. And in the third sector, it's exactly the same. They've been talking about, oh, yes, this grant management, this grant making is very inefficient. And I know they've talked about it for at least 20 years. And if you think when people apply to universities, UCA, which is now UCAS, that was set up in 1961. And what's kept everyone so long? I think in the third sector, it's something to do with the power imbalance, because the funders have all the money and the charities don't want to bite the hands that feed them. And the funders really don't think they have a problem. Do you see a similar sort of situation? I'm not sure about similar, but I think what you just said about power and funders not seeing a problem feels very right. I think one of the really weirdest thing about funders is that an awful lot of funders are, if you like, funders at once removed. They're, they're like in the early days of the National Trust, when a, a lot of the houses were managed by people who actually had a rather bitter and twisted feel to the world because they wished they were an aristocrat as well. And I think quite a lot of the people who run philanthropic funds wish that it was indeed them that was dispensing the largesse, and therefore they have quite a mealy-mouthed view of how they're going to treat the applicant. Uh, they want you to be suitably supplicant and to have filled in forms so that you can feel as if you've actually really towed the forelock. I think you're absolutely right, and I think Brevio is a, an inspired decision because, as you say, it isn't something that any other body could have done. It required someone privately to put it in place. And I think a lot of people are very grateful for it. And boy, also, when you think of the smaller charities who do not have people with the expertise, it enables them to have a vehicle in which they can look as good as anybody else, which yeah. I think is great. I think that's really good. And it's a, it's a very democratic force. But I, I just want to go to back to this, this change. There's a lot of talk I'm, I'm hearing these days about things have changed because of the pandemic. And, you know, a crisis is a good opportunity to make change. Uh, and I'm seeing a bit more collaboration in the third sector. What about in, in, in the climate sector and the environment sector? Has the, has the pandemic put a different focus on, on your issues? Well, I think the COVID plague has done something that none of us in the environment world could have done in 50 years. It has, in the space of a couple of months, educated almost every living human being with the concept of the world being interconnected and that national boundaries mean nothing and that the power of nature is total. It's also been incredibly good news for pangolins uh, because pangolins are now no longer allowed to be slaughtered in wet markets in China. 
but nor should that ever have been the case. No, I think the world has changed ridiculously. I think not only have you got interconnectedness that is suddenly understood, but I think also so many people being locked at home, seeing for the first time since they were children, seasons unfolding around (laughs) them, I think has made them suddenly incredibly conscious of what they're losing and how important it is to them. And a lot of people that I know have reconnected with nature. Uh, Everybody's trying to grow something. Our gardens are getting visited by dozens of people every minute. Uh, I mean, it's unbelievable. We're packed. I think also politically, for me, what is interesting is, as you know, trees just before they die have their ultimate flowering. And as you see the old dogs that are currently presidents and prime ministers all over the world in their kind of smug right-wingery, I like to think of those trees in their last days before death, and I see their political doctrines as being like the flowers that will fall to the ground, and very soon a new world will be all around us. And I actually firmly believe that, although I'm saying it slightly lightheartedly. I think the world now realizes the internet linked with the pandemic is starting to make people think of the fact that what we do here affects over there. And also, when you're talking about throwing away, I think people suddenly realizing there's no country called away. I think the interest medically in the human biome, you know, the gut and so on, has revealed an entire world of microbia Uh, on which we depend at exactly the same time that the research uh, on mycorrhiza, you know, the fungi in the soil and whatever, Mm. the the wood wide web is showing us exactly the same thing. So at a time where we're becoming in the West increasingly secular, I'm delighted on behalf of our youngsters that the world is coming to the realization of something that in 1969 you and I thought was a hippie thing, but we are all stardust. I think what we're real realizing is that we're all made of the same stuff. We are creaturely, we are earthlings. And I think that is going to be fundamental if we're going to coordinate the strategies that are going to be able to make us live peacefully and and well on a planet of limited resources. That's so reassuring because I was going to say, I was going to ask you, what I'm finding in the charity world is a lot of people talking about collaborating more and yes, this is a great idea, but it would be very easy for them, you know, for a funder to go back and say, well, actually, I want my own grant application form and I want to do it my way. And I'm very reassured that from what you're saying in in your field, we're not going to go back to the old normal, um, that so many bigger things have been learnt. And I'm, I'm trying to think how I can learn from you to get across that feeling that you can't go back to doing it the old way. I mean, and you're not, you, you're saying it's not going to be possible to go back to the old ways. You're very optimistic in, in, in what you're saying, which I find wonderfully reassuring. I actually think that we're living at the most exciting time since humans came out of the trees. I think, because I go to schools a lot, that we don't need to be scared of youth because there are so many smart young people. And when you talk to them, you realize that they're wise beyond their years in understanding these things about interconnections. And they think that we're very foolish, us older people, to have allowed people to talk about free markets and all of those things in such a way that enabled the commons to be trashed. They find it absolutely extraordinary and they get angry, rightly so, and we should encourage them to be angry. And I think when you're looking at the role of philanthropy and dealing with the issues of each philanthropist, I think Brevio is going to make that a lot easier. I think people do constantly need to be reminded Do you actually want to change the problem which you're about to give money to, or do you just want to go on forever 
giving money to something that you're not giving enough to change it. Mm. And you and I have talked about this before, but I think there are some elementary things in philanthropy where we've allowed ourselves to become so outcomes-led. We, we can't measure something as being worth doing unless we can say five people are better off than this and 10 people doing that. I remember I was advising the boss of the Arts Council some years ago about grant applications and he was talking about how torn he was about how do you judge whether uh, funding a show that changes the lives of 80 people is more important to fund than one that mildly entertained a thousand. And where, where do you set your, your benchmark? And where I came out on all this, and I think you and I are of a similar view, is that I feel that if I was a grant-giving agency, what I think should be on the front page is a piece of A4, and all it says, a week after you spent all the money, how are you feeling and what happened? Because I think so many people don't think that it's like, we want to do this project, but they haven't thought through to the benefits they could have got out of it. And I think if you if if it was my personal money and I was going to give it to someone, I want to know that people are passionate about it, that they know what they're doing, and that more importantly, they've really thought about creating something that's that's either going to solve that problem or create something that is going to mediate it in in a significant way. I think too much pressure is put on the philanthropist to take things on trust. And then the forms seek to actually confuse both both the philanthropist and the supplicant because it's not saying what is the emotional return either wants or expects. It's basically saying, have you got the outcomes listed here? I think one of the problems is that charities have been accused in the past of being too sort of fuzzy about things. And then people came in and they said, right, okay, let's make charities more commercial. And it's very easy in a commercial situation because you either, you know, your bottom line is either positive or negative. And if it's negative for too long, you ain't going to be there forever. Whereas with a charity, how do I say this? Whether they're actually being effective or not doesn't necessarily um, predict whether they're going to go on existing. Because if they're very good at filling in grant application forms and doing presentations, they're going to keep on getting the money. We're not going to know if they've actually done any good. And I think that's that's one of the, one of the sort of conundrums that we have that people want to know, you know, did you do anything with this money? Um, and just sort of having a nice warm feeling, is, is that enough? Well, you know, know. You, you know the difference, the difference between a dead elephant and a, and a, a live elephant, don't you? You I can buy it. a live elephant for £20,000. If you shoot it and show a photograph of it being shot, it's worth at least £200,000. My son's just been doing some extraordinary work, which shows that some of the animal charities in the world, the amount of money that they've actually raised against what they their stated aims are you could have been you could have bought a bloody reserve you know and armed guards and all the rest of it so mm. i think your question is really good where's the money going yeah what's it doing for i think you you said it when we started this conversation on an email that um you felt you've been a big game hunter in search of philanthropists and you've you've got a hundred 10,000 acre rainforest in Costa Rica that was bought by Danish philanthropists. What, what do you think the, the, the role of a philanthropist is? I mean, I see myself as a philanthropist and I did study philanthropy and that's what inspired me to put, set up both local giving and Brevio. What, what do you think the role is? How, how could I be a good philanthropist? The good philanthropist. There's a title of a book, isn't it? <laughs> I, I think there is an emotional intelligence about 
how to give money that unblocks things. There's an understanding of the mathematics of leverage. Mm. There is also an understanding of being a great judge of human beings and who to invest in. I think the really successful philanthropy is where enough money has gone into the storytelling to make the story so compelling that everybody who hears it really understands it. Yeah. I think you have philanthropy where it is a a particular event horizon and you're trying to protect something, save something, set up a service, you know, uh, restore a building or something. Then there are examples, I think, and our, our Costa Rica example is a very good one where a Danish philanthropist in about 35 years ago, he bought 42 farms that were so denuded that they were not sustaining any life whatsoever. And he fenced the 10,000 acres with an order that no humans are allowed in for at least 20 years, let the birds Mm. shit shit this back to life. This was brilliant philanthropy because it demonstrated that without the agency of humans, the land is very capable of restoring itself. And the inspirational part of this, and this is what made the philanthropy really brilliant, is that where previously there had been murders for five months of the year because of drought, suddenly, about uh, 15 years ago, uh, four rivers were flowing 24 hours a day, 365. And the town of Paquera nearby, uh, which had suffered these droughts, was able to hold a water festival. And I was privileged enough to go where the remaining, the three sons of Peder Kolind, uh, fulfilled his dying wish, which was to give the water rights to the local town, which is an incredibly valuable thing to give. Uh, And the mayor made a speech that I wish I'd recorded because it should be made available to everybody about humans not normally having a second chance. And because of this rainforest having regrown, everybody now who lived in Pakera understood their dependence on the natural world and that they had to nurture it. And they'd built their own fire station and they had a volunteer gang to make sure there were no fires and all the rest of it. And everybody now understood that cutting down the rainforest was a bad thing. And it changed their thinking so profoundly because they were now looking at how could they move their agricultural practices into becoming agroforestry. So that in the rainforest, to create a living, so it wasn't about getting them out of the rainforest, but it meant that you were creating livings and opening a biodiversity corridor. Two weeks ago, the first jaguar in 30 years came into that reserve. Tim, that is just amazing. But what worries me is that it's still going on, destroying the rainforest all over Brazil there. Brazil is getting, I mean, you know the area much better than I do, but it's just going on. You know, they're, they're destroying more, more rainforests now than they had in previous years. And, and what can we do about that? They are, and they will suffer. Um, what can you do about it? The first thing is, don't be arrogant and assume that there aren't enough people in Brazil protesting about it. There are. Mm. Okay. Uh, we, we, no, we always seem to think, I'm, sorry, I, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm including myself here. I wasn't, I wasn't trying to slap no, no, your wrist. No, there no. is a tendency to think that, that wherever you're not, it's not being done properly. Let me give you a, a source of hope. The fastest growing stocks in the world at the moment are in clean meat, that is artificial meat made by vegetable materials. billion they turned over this last year to last March. This year, March, coming in 2021, is probably going to be double that. The country that's most interested in this is China. Why? Because it's built over most of its great farmland on the East Coast. The remaining farmland is largely dominated by livestock. 
this cannot continue. So they want to go into clean meat. The Chinese take 80% of the entire soy crop from Brazil, which means if they go out of livestock and into clean meat over the next 15, 20 years, you will have a huge number of people wanting to find a crop for what naturally grows where the soy was. Mm. Welcome, Mr. Mrs. Rainforest. They will come back. So I'm very hopeful because if we if we aren't hopeful, we will fry. And if we fry, we would have wasted lots of time crying. And we would have deserved it anyway because yes. a, a species... If you look at humans as having been voted for by life to be like the the, ne- the the new dominant species, if we fail, we just fail and then we just go and then some other creature. You, what you don't realise is under the ocean there are octopus and squid just biding their time, waiting for us to mess up because it's their turn next. It's funny because what, what I think, going back to the role of philanthropists, there's been a lot of, uh, there's a book recently published by a guy called Paul Vallely. And, you know, basically saying that, well, there's lots of things he said in the book, but what was picked up by The Guardian is that philanthropists are not accountable for what they're doing. But for what you're saying, we really are accountable. I think the other thing that we can do is we can take risks. I mean, as a philanthropist, I've been funding Brevio. If I'd have had to have done a grant application form and, and prove it's working and keep on going with it, you know, and things I've done in the past or if I've done it not quite right, I can accept the mistakes that I've made because it's my money. And I think that gives me a tremendous power because I can take the risks that government couldn't take and other people couldn't take. And and that is a great benefit, I think, that philanthropists do have. Yes, but can I give you another view? Please do. That's what you're here for. Right, yeah. I'll give you another view and I'll be very careful to mention no names because I don't want to be found dead in a ditch. One of the great dangers in our society at the moment is because of the way we harness sanctimony like a brand value. There are many, many charitable NGOs out there who are now buying land all over the world with rich people giving them money and they're buying more and more land. Why are they doing it? They're doing it for reasons of conservation and conservation must be a good thing and what are we doing with that conservation we're going to make sure that humans don't come into the land that we have purchased but what about the original bushmen for example oh we'll put a bullet in their heads if they're in the wrong place now who was it that gave you the most money to buy all that land well there's lots of people many many people do i notice the name of some very well known mineral extracting companies heaven for fend how is it possible that some of this land which was meant to be conserved is seeing the original inhabitants the original owners chased off it in the name of a western ideal of the noble noble wiles and yet suddenly contracts are done which enable people looking for certain minerals to go in, in return for a royalty, to the charity, to enable even more conservation to take place. Good God, I didn't know about that, Tim. No, not many people do. Not many people do, no. But the the point is, the point I'm making is, is, there's a double-edged sword to philanthropy. I think philanthropy is terrific if it sits within the social parameters and citizenship parameters of what we would view as the rights of the global commons. When it comes to a situation where people are deciding where to put their money and it affects the the global commons in a bad way, I'll give you an example. There are some marvellous philanthropists who are putting a lot of money into medicine and they have chosen that the, the things they want to cure are particularly evil blights on the human species. So their choice of now putting lots and lots of money in 
is making a whole bunch of doctors who are serving the general population decide to work for this campaign. And therefore, suddenly there aren't enough doctors to deal with the other problems. Yes, and I know as well as you do that people that look at issues are very much affected on their choice of issues and something that's affected them. Like if you look at any, any medical research, the funding for that has often been somebody who's been affected by that particular issue. Yeah, I, I, look, I didn't no. wish what I didn't wish what I said to condemn philanthropy in that big sector. It's just I was saying it so that neither you nor I was guilty of mm. saying a carte blanche. You doing what you did, I think, is a brilliant use of philanthropic money because you're actually making access to philanthropy easier for a whole bunch of people who you believe actually their cause was far more important than having to spend days and days and days on filling in forms. Yeah, Um, And I think that's a terrific gift. I think the other thing that I'm quite proud of is is the word you mentioned earlier, which is leverage. I mean, in terms of local giving, I think I put, well, nine years of my life and about four million pounds into it, but it's already raised 33 for small local charities. And I also feel strongly that people living, it's what I learned actually when I did the philanthropy course, that People living in a place know what the problems are, you know, and they and they know what the solutions are. More importantly, and they don't actually need anybody to come from head office and tell them what to do. People locally really know what they're doing, and uh, and what the solution to their problems are. And that's that's why I, I put a lot of time and effort into local giving. And I, I see a lot more localism happening since the pandemic. You know, communities building up and doing things, and I think that that's really quite important. And that could be a change from the pandemic that we will will not go away. I think that's absolutely right, absolutely right. I think the other thing that I wanted to talk about is the role of business. And um, I think I'm quoting here saying that one of the oldest phrases in the world, and I know it's one that my father always used to use to me, is waste not, want not. And my mother is certainly being Dutch, didn't want to waste anything. And the creation of waste is the root of a lot of the problems. And it's one of the things I'm trying to fight with wasting the charity's time. And I think you've also said that at what point should we say to businesses, you know, throw down the gauntlet of them and saying, look, you've got no moral compass here. It's not just about maximising shareholder value, that business should be part of the whole society and must recognise that. And there's a lot of lip service being paid to this, you know, a lot of sort of greenwashing on company reports. But how long do we go on actually, when, when do we start throwing down the gauntlet at them and really be demanding that there's, I think it's something you said, it should be incredibly punitive to, to trash the environment. Yeah, I mean, as you may know, I view auditors as almost treasonous because they have not progressed their profession at all, hardly over the last hundred years. Mm. And audare, which is the word from which auditor came, In Roman days, the auditor used to go to the estates and would look at the values of the water, how clean was it, how good health was the stock in, how good was the soil, how healthy were the trees. Auditors today don't notice any of those things. To be honest, I blame government to a degree rather than business. I think most of our governments uh, in most countries of the world have an overweening respect for a business rhetoric and they don't understand when the right time is to intervene because that's perceived as political. And if you're intervening, it is largely perceived to be a left-wing thing. And if it's left-wing, therefore we should fight it, of course, because we don't want those left-wing people who don't know how to run businesses actually telling us what to do. The truth is, 
that if we said, look, we, the people, we, the people of Britain, as this is in Britain that we're doing this, um, are prepared to let you have a limited liability company, which means that you personally are not going to be liable for some of your mistakes. In return for that, we, the mm. people, think it's only fair that you give us one golden share. And that share, making us a shareholder, means that when the auditors look at your company, they will tell us how clean is the river, how clean is the air, how healthy is the soil, and have you done anything to impact the common wheel. And if you have, you must pay damages for it. It's incredibly simple. I mm. cannot believe that we haven't done anything that intelligent. Yeah. Exactly. Because, I mean, the, the problem was, you know, shareholder value is the only thing that, that the management of the company has to do. And that is just so wrong. I, I, know, I know it's changing. I know it started, I mean, I was involved in something at INSEAD, um, which is where I did my MBA. And they've, they've got a whole, um, I've, in fact, I, I put some seed funding into putting a, an institute for business and society. And they, they are actually, and, and most of the business schools are doing this now, so that the, 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 lead, the business leaders of the future are getting and they're not they're not having it forced down them they're all absolutely crying out for it to to actually say what is my role in business and it's not just shareholder shareholder value it is the environment it is the the community it is the it, it is the employees and i think that will be a sea change uh, because all the business schools are, are really doing this now and i think I think the other question I'm going to say, you know, I mean, you're obviously laying down the gauntlet to, to government, to businesses. I've got to lay down the gauntlet to funders and say, will you stop wasting the charity's time? And will you stop not wasting the charity's time, but they're using the money that the public have given? Because if you think about 99% of the money that's given to charities, it's either from lotteries or government. And let's face it, it's not the government's money, it's the taxpayers' money. Or it's, you know, in individual private donations. Nobody has a God-given right. OK, there are a few foundations that have come from um, legacies and things, but the vast majority of it is the public's money. And that's what's being wasted. It's not their money. And I think that's something that maybe I've got to be a bit more aggressive about. I think that's right. What I would say, as you're a Dutch woman half, and I'm a Dutch man half, is that we've got to get in touch with our emotional side because no one has ever changed their behavior through being shouted at. Mm. And I, th I think a story I sometimes tell, which is, I'm, I'm sure I've stolen it from someone else because it feels naturally rather good, um, is imagine you're at Paddington Station and suddenly the entire station roof plasters itself together like the Sistine Chapel in the Vatican. And everybody who's standing in the station at that time, suddenly the faces of their descendants 50 years from now are painted on that ceiling looking down. Mm. Now imagine they could talk just for one, one sentence. What would they beg us to be doing? And I think we need stories like that, that mm. actually we approach charities and things like that, not saying you're wasting our money, you're doing it. It is how in a world where these resources that you're, dis you're, you're distributing are so rare, so precious, and could do so much good, how could you do this better? So as opposed to it being a criticism, it's, mm. an, it's, it's an incitement to, to, to do even, it better. Yeah, I think that's necessary, because I, I know you well enough to know, I doubt you've ever changed your mind when someone shouted at you. <laughs> <laughs> I've probably cowered in a corner, Tim, you know me. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> It was fantastic to catch up with Tim and to be inspired about how we can really change the system to create the best future from climate change 
to charity funding. Thanks again, Tim, and all my other brilliant guests from these series. And thanks to you for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Brevio and how your organization can set up as a funder or sign up as a charity, do head over to our website, brevio.org. Thank you.